gospel. Please be seated. Please open your Bibles up to Psalm 51. And uh, a couple of things before we pray. Uh, I, I don't know how many of you have been watching a little basketball over the last couple of, of nights, but uh, you know, if you were listening to the national media, you would think that San Antonio needs to, to, to panic right now. And I want you to know that everything's okay. San Antonio will be playing in San Antonio tomorrow night, and our secret weapon will be there. Barbara Cunningham is going to be in attendance at the game tomorrow night. They don't lose when Barbara is there. Uh, the other thing is... Um, uh, we believe it or not, uh, there have uh, there have been some some really cool technological things that we've been able to to do recently, and you're going to get to experience one of them tonight, sort of in a practice run. And uh, what that is going to be is that uh, at, at some point in this sermon, the best-looking short preacher in South Texas is going to show up on that screen. And the uh, the, the reason that we're doing this is because of the annex plus the cry room and the training room for the sparks room, uh, there are times when they need to see what's happening here in the auditorium. And so tonight we're going to make sure that it's all working just fine, and we have a couple of guys that got trained this evening, and uh, they are eager. So probably during the sermon at some point, you're going to see me pop up there on that screen. Please do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I know it's going to be a scary deal, but you don't need to be afraid. Uh, and we'll get, yeah, too late. <laughs> Somebody said too late. Well, there you go. You need to back up a little bit at that point then. Listen, let's pray, and then we're going to jump into the lesson. We are going to do some really uh, heavy-duty work. We're going to get our theological spades out and dig deep into Psalm 51. But let's ask God to, to bless us. Father, thank you so much for this, this great passage that, that John has read to us. It means so much, and it, it, it not only brings us slow, but it lifts us up. It not only, Father, helps, helps us to realize the nature of our own being and, and, and brings us low in humility, knowing what we are capable of doing, Father, but it also lifts us up and, and helps us to understand that there is a path of grace to you, Father and the possibility for great changes in our life. And so our prayer, Father, is that you will guide us through this study in such a way that, that, that we are transformed by, not just in our mind, but in our heart, that we live differently, that we live a more obedient life, a more holy life, a life that is, that is, that is, uh, that is led by the Spirit. And so give us the eyes that see and the ears that hear. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A guilty conscience, uh, guilt, has, has been in the news this week. Many of you have heard this last week, maybe for the first time, of a young black man by the name of Brian Banks. He was 16 years old when he was accused of raping a 16-year-old young woman while in high school. At that time, uh, as the courts were, were during that year that he was in the, the, the juvie detention center, uh, and the courts rolled around to, to what was uh, going to be a, a pretty horrendous trial for him. It looked like he was going to face, if convicted, 41 years to life in prison for this, this, this crime. His lawyer convinced him to plea bargain to a smaller sentence, not thinking that he could fight the accusation successfully in a court of law. So he's, he's, uh, he, he pleads no contest. He goes to prison for five years. He got out about four years ago, 
everywhere he has lived since then as a 26-year-old uh, man. He has had to register as a sex offender with the local police and authorities. He has had to wear an ankle bracelet with a GPS in it since leaving the, the, the prison. And uh, last week, his accuser, after, you know, 10 years, stepped forward and confessed that she made the whole thing up. Uh, just con confessed that she had gotten mad at him and decided that she was, uh, she was going to accuse him of some pretty heinous things. And it took 10 years, but guilt is a hard thing to get away from. Now, what we're dealing with in Psalm 51 is guilt. Is guilt. And for a lot of decades now, uh, there have been folks in education, folks in mental health and, and, and therapy uh, areas, uh, talk show hosts, have been trying to get rid of guilt, to, to get us out of it, to get it off of us. And it hasn't really worked all that well. Guilt in our society, I think, is like an iceberg. What we see is just the tip above the surface, and what lies beneath is monstrous. And what you find beneath the surface of so much of the anxiety we have in our culture, I think, is a conscience on fire. And so the big question that we're going to deal with tonight is this. How do you deal with a guilty conscience? And the heading for this psalm, I think, gives us its context. It reads, a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Now, you remember the story out of 2 Samuel. David is a popular young man. He makes the king at that time his predecessor to the throne, King Saul, a little jealous. And in that jealousy, the king goes after David, tries to kill him on a couple of occasions, and this forces David to flee out to the wilderness. And while out there, you know, it's not very idyllic out there. It's, it's a little bit rough. It's a little bit uh, primitive in the Judean wilderness. And David has a, a rough life. Uh, a pretty rough life for the, for the time being while he is being hunted by, by King Saul and King Saul's henchmen. And during this period of time, David gathers to himself these men that came to be known as the mighty men. They are men that are loyal to David and protected David and provided for David. These were the men that protected David. In many respects, David owes his life to these men. In fact, there's, there's this really incredible story in, in, um, in, in 1 Samuel that tells about uh, three of these mighty men who are with David and they hear him sigh for a drink of cool water from the well that's just inside the gate of Bethlehem. And they decide that David is, is somebody that they love and respect and are so loyal to. They, they see in him the future king of Israel and they are dedicated to him beyond dedication and in danger to life and limb. They make it through the Philistines at great danger to themselves they get the cup of water from the well there in Bethlehem, and they take it back to David. They are loyal men. They are fierce men, and they would do anything for David. And David owes his life to these 37 men that are listed in the Bible that are known as his mighty men. And one in that list is a Hittite by the name of Uriah. And in 2 Samuel chapter 11, all of these men go off to fight the wars of Israel but for some reason, maybe it's because David's about 50 years of age, maybe because he's getting older, for some reason he stays home rather than going off and fighting Israel's wars, the battles. And one night he's up on his roof and he sees a, a woman, a beautiful woman, bathing. And David feels like he has to have her. And he sends for her, he discovers 
in the meantime that she is the wife of Uriah, one of these mighty men to whom David owes his very life. But it doesn't matter because David has already decided in his heart and mind that he has to have her. And he takes her to bed. And it's not too long after that that a note is sent to the palace and she ends up getting pregnant. And David realizes that he has a problem, that this is a problem that's going to affect him in, the, in, in, his, in his kingdom. And he, decided, he decides to cover it up. So he sends for Uriah ostensibly to find out how the war is going. And afterwards, after getting kind of a debriefing from Uriah, he tells Uriah to go home and to have some comfort, to have a good meal, to spend some time with his wife, let nature take its course. But Uriah is a man of integrity. He's incredibly principled. And Uriah will not do it while his comrades are living a life of hardship and away from their homes and, and away from their wives. And he will not do it. And so he spends the night on the steps of his home, will not even go in under the roof of his own house. So David now has an, a, a, a bigger problem. He invites Uriah back, and he tries to, 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 uh, to get Uriah to lay those principles down, to, to, to eject or reject that integrity just for a little while by getting Uriah drunk. And he sends Uriah home, again, thinking that nature will take its course. But Uriah's principles and integrity is intact, and, he's, and, he, and he sleeps again on the steps of his own house. Well, finally, David writes a note to Joab thinking that he's got to take matters into his own hand more drastically now. He sends it with Uriah to Joab, and it says this. Basically, I want to get, a rid I want to get rid of this man, put him in the most fierce part of the line at the front of the battle, at the point where the fighting is, is, is most terrible, and then pull back from him. And a couple of days later, David receives word that Uriah is dead and sends a note of consolation to Joab saying, you know, hey, the sword devours one, it devours another. Don't be worried about this thing. It's just war. And this gives David the opportunity that he's been looking for, to be able to cover up the pregnancy by marrying Bathsheba after the time of her mourning. And David has what he wants. He has, uh, uh, you know, he's living life very happily. He's, he's not going around like some Woody Allen figure in a Woody Allen movie because it's kind of racked with guilt. There's premeditation here and there's, and there's hard-heartedness. I mean, all of that is despicable. And everybody thinks that everything is going along just fine, but the Lord sees it and is displeased. One day Nathan, a prophet, comes to court and tells the story of this rich man and this poor man who had sheep. Rich man had a ton of sheep. The poor man only had one that he treated like his little daughter, ate at the table with him. And the rich man had some guests that came to his house, but instead of taking from the many in his flock, he steals the one beloved sheep of this poor man, kills it, and serves it to his friends. And Nathan wants to know, what should be done here? And Nathan flies into this rage, and, and David flies into wrath at the injustice and says that the rich man deserves to die. He does not deserve to live. And Nathan waves his hand and calms David down and says, you're the man. And in that moment, David is inundated with horror and, and shame and guilt. He holds, sort of metaphorically, a, a mirror up to his face, and what he sees is ugliness. And David is plunged into the depths because he sees the magnitude of his sin. And everything comes crashing down on him. But here's the thing. David comes out of all of that. The guilt and the self-hatred and the self-loathing that he experienced was incredible. And yet, this psalm tells us that he came out of it. 
He says, open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. David is able to come out from under the guilt. He comes out to the point where he wants... You know, there are a lot of times when we feel this guilt and we come out of it, but we think that we'll never be able to tell. We've been compromised. We'll never be able to say or tell anyone how to live their life. We, who, who are we to be able to tell them how to live? David comes out of that. He comes to the point where he wants to tell other people how to live. He says in verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will come back to you. Now, one of the beautiful things about this is that if it worked for David, it works for everyone. And here's how he did it. David, in this psalm, reveals to us two insights that he discovered that makes the difference and become the solution to how he was able to rise out of the abyss of guilt and out of the depths of self-loathing because of his, his murder and his sin against, you know, against God. And the, the difference is between remorse and repentance, firstly, and then secondly, the difference between reprieve and regeneration. So let's look at how he comes up out of the death, death, depths. First, Remorse versus repentance. What is, you know, stepping back for a second, what is one of the purposes of the Bible? Uh, there are lots of, of, of reasons that we read the Bible. There are lots of purposes to, to educate us about God, to reveal God to us. You know, to kind of cut to the chase, one of the purposes of the Bible is to try and convince you to repent. That's why those stories are in there. One of the big differences between the Bible and all of the other ancient literature is that the Bible doesn't let any of the human characters off the hook just because they're in the Bible. It tells the truth about what they're like. The Bible, unlike any other ancient document, does not list all of the achievements of the human characters in order for us to ooh and awe and to be impressed over them. In the retelling of the David Bathsheba story, I mean... I mean, how do I know all those details that I just told you? It's because they're in the Bible. The Bible does not whitewash the characters, and the Bible does this to all of the characters. Paul, uh, Peter, Moses, Abraham, all of them, Gideon. It does it to all. Why? Why does the Bible not whitewash anybody? Why does the Bible tell us the ugly truth about every human being that's ever been mentioned in the Bible? It's this one fact. It's to convince us that we are all sinners. Regardless of how great we might be, we are all sinners. Our hearts are evil. Even a great man, a poet, a sublime poet, an athlete, a king, he had it all. David is capable of of this kind of deed. And so are you. And so am I. And one of the prerequisites for you to be blessed by God is to repent of the evil that is in your heart. And John the Baptist arrives on the scene as the herald of the Messiah. He's trying to get people prepared to meet the Messiah and to get their hearts ready in order to hear the message that God is going to say to them through Jesus as God on the Sermon on the Mount and other places and the parables but to be able to be ready for the Messiah, to be able to hear His message correctly, what is it that John the Baptist says you have to do? His message was pretty simple. One, it was a little, uh, a, a, a little intense, but the message continually was this, repent. He had one message. It was to repent. And on the day of Pentecost, over in Acts chapter 2, and the people asked Peter, what must they do to be saved? What's the first word out of his mouth? 
I mean, they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They also believe that they destroyed him on a cross three days prior. They also believe that he is the Messiah as proven by the resurrection. They say, what do we have to do to get back with God? And what is the first thing that Peter says? Repent. Until you repent, God has nothing else to say to you that makes sense. And the reason for repentance is because sin is such a malignant evil that it is so deeply rooted that even kings, poet kings, kings that are like David, the only one in the Bible, in two places, one in the Old and one in the New Testament, it said he's after God's own heart. That a king like that is capable of these terrible deeds. The sinfulness of humanity is the reason that things are wrong in the world. And why it has to be dealt with before anything can really change in your life. Now here's the thing. There's a gigantic difference between repentance and remorse. And here is how Paul is going to write about it years after David writes Psalm 51. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to what? Salvation and leaves. Let's say that again as a church. It's really important. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Let's say it again. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. It brings death. Did you hear that? There are two kinds of sorrow for sin. There is one that is going to lead to salvation, to freedom, to no regret, to, 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 to a life with God. And there is another kind of sorrow that leads to death. Now, what is the difference? Here's where David helps us in Psalm 51. Now, we identify with the emotions of David, right? What he's feeling and, and what he describes as his feelings in the psalm. He talks about, I feel the need for mercy. I feel like I need to be cleansed. I feel like I need to be washed. But it kind of hits us hard. Or we, we, we pull up short when we hear David say this, verse 4, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. I mean, what in the world does that mean? I mean, poor Uriah is lying on the battlefield dead. Bathsheba's been yanked from her husband. Her child uh, is, is dead. Now, in, in saying, against you, God, only have I sinned, David is not denying any of those things that happened to Uriah or to Bathsheba or to anybody else in the kingdom. But what he is revealing is an incredible truth that, I, that he discovered. And it's this. The nature of sin is not primarily the breaking of a law. It is that, but not that primarily. It is an attack on the Creator. It's an attack on the Creator. Here's the deal. Are you, at your birth, as a human being, growing up, are you an accident, or did God create you with intent? If you were created, then that means that your Creator has authority over you the same way that, that a writer has authority over a character he's created in a book. You're John Steinbeck. You're, 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 you're writing Cannery Row. You want Doc to have a beard and you want him to be slight. You want Mac you know, to live in a flop house. You want Dora to have flaming red hair. You're the Creator. You, you write it any way that you want. If there is an author to your life, to your human life, 
then there is someone who is over you. And there is someone that you owe everything to. As a creature, you owe everything to that Creator. Now, what do you think you owe Him? Well, to serve Him and to obey Him, obviously, but more than that. I mean, think theologically about this. Go back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis. The serpent approaches Eve and he says to Eve, You know, Eve, I've been watching you, I've been watching everything, and I think God is trying to keep you down. God doesn't want you to reach your greatest potential. You don't need to do what God has been telling you to do. If you eat of this tree, it's going to be wonderful. Now, do you see what happened there in, in Eve's mind? Before there could be a literal breaking of the command, in this case, to eat of that forbidden fruit, there had to be a decision to disdain the place of God. She had to reject the goodness of God. She had to attack the goodness of God in her heart in order to eat that fruit. You see, the sin beneath all other sins is a distrusting of God's character. Before David murdered Uriah and before David slept with Bathsheba, David had to murder God, the character of God, in his own heart. Tomorrow, you go to work, not expecting anything big, and then all of a sudden there's the temptation. You're tempted to do something unethical in order to make you a lot of money. And you know right off the bat, yeah, it's in your brain. I mean, you know this is unethical. You shouldn't do it. But the temptation is there to make a lot of money. And before you make the decision to break an ethic or a law to make that money, you have to decide in your heart that you know what is best for you rather than what God as your creator decides is best for you. And what you do is you displace God as a king by becoming the king yourself. And then that act of sin, the act of, of doing something unethical for, for, for gaining some money, is the second thing that takes place. The murder of God's character, though, is the first thing to happen. That's why David is saying, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David realizes that before sin is the breaking of a law, it is the stabbing of God in the heart. And all sin is a form of cosmic treason against the king of heaven. Now remorse is different. Remorse means that you're looking at the mess that you've gotten yourself into and you see that you've stabbed yourself in your own heart and you've undermined yourself as a king. You've done something and you go, oh my goodness, what have I done? This is going to be embarrassing to me. It's going to be embarrassing to my family. What can I do? What can I do? What can I do to cover this up? I've got to do something. I've got to lie or I've got to leave or I've got to resign or I've got to forge documents or whatever it might be. But I've got to protect this, this problem. Remorse is self-pity on steroids. And you haven't really discovered what is really wrong if that's what you're thinking. Repentance, on the, hunt, uh, on the other hand, is completely different. The problem is not primarily the action of murder or theft, but the rejection of God's goodness. And here is where things can begin to change. When you repent for the real sin, the rejection of, of God's goodness, of disdaining Him in your heart, the thing that makes you feel guilty is also the thing that begins to give you hope. When you begin to repent of the fact 
that you did not believe that God was good. It opens you up to the possibility that He really is good and merciful. Now let me push you a little further in this. It's a fact that many people who begin to feel guilty actually stop coming to church for what reason? They want to disappear. Why do they want to disappear? It's because they feel remorse and they want to get away from God who makes them feel only worse about what they've done. They want to get away from the people who might question them. Why are they missing? Why are they not coming? Why do you seem to be so depressed or whatever it might be? They want to get away from them. They want to disappear from them because it only makes them feel worse. If David felt remorse, he could have moved to a hybrid faith that would allow him to say, well, you know, adultery can't be wrong if it made me feel good. And maybe Uriah even deserved to die. You know, this is one thing that the atheist and the remorseful sinner have in common. One gigantic thing that they have in common. They don't believe in the love and the goodness and the mercy and the grace of God. The atheist says the law of God, which expresses God's love, is stupid. And the remorseful, remorseful sinner says, I have higher standards than God. Remorse drives you from God. Repentance moves you toward God. And that is when the birth of hope and love begin to blossom in our heart. And when you get a hold of that, you are able to start coming out of the depths. There is a tremendous difference between repentance and remorse. But secondly, there's a great difference between reprieve and regeneration. You, you know, one of the things that's kind of striking about this psalm and, and, and some of the other psalms that David writes, Psalm 32, some of the scholars think there's at least four psalms that are written about uh, David's uh, adultery of Bathsheba. One of the things that kind of stands out is that David, you, you never get this picture of David on his hands and knees asking God for a second chance, for another chance. You don't. You know, think about this. You know, when I was when I was younger, I, I remember doing some things that, that would make my father upset with me. And when I was real little, uh, there was always the threat of corporal punishment. And you know, uh, you know, no knock against moms, but you know, my brothers and I, we get in trouble. Mom can't whip you all at once, so I mean, you, you get away with things. But if Dad ever said, "Okay," you know, you knew you were dead. And so Dad, you know, we would do something, and, and Dad would, would get really upset. And I, I remember feeling very, very terrible and also very, very fearful of, of the punishment he was going to bring out. And I remember begging him for a second chance. Dad, I, you know, I won't do this again. Give me a second chance. I promise you, Dad, I'm not going to do it. Give me a second chance. I, I've learned my lesson. I, I will never do this again. I will never. Little did I know that I would fail again, and little did I know how terrible I would feel after I had blown two chances. And my dad made sure that I understood that. <laughs> but David is smarter than a seven-year-old Mark Absher. David is not concerned as much that he did this as he is concerned that he is capable of doing this. That's why he says in verse 5, Surely I was sinful at birth. The poet king, great athlete, Man after God's own heart, writer of psalms. 
Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. David's got a nature that wants to put him in the place of God, and he understands that there is evil in him. And why get a reprieve when it will only erupt again? That's why he writes these incredibly important words. Oh God, create in me a pure heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. I think that song we learned tonight, Jeff, you did a great job. Thank you so much. It blesses our church to sing songs like that. That song we learned tonight just took on for, for, I think, a lot of us a whole new significance, didn't it? Hey, David wants a new heart, not a second chance. David wants a different everything. David wants a new life. A disciple of Jesus doesn't ask for a second chance because he knows he will blow it. That's why a Christian wants a different heart. And to be transformed into the likeness of Christ by degrees. Romans 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. That's why a Christian wants the, the Spirit to be active in his life. After Psalm 51, some years later, the same thing is going to be addressed by Ezekiel to a sinful people. Ezekiel chapter 18, Ezekiel chapter 36. God says, you've got to get rid of the filth and you've got to allow me to give you a new heart. And over in John chapter 3, Jesus is meeting with this, this Pharisee by the, and a member of the Sanhedrin by the name of Nicodemus. And he says, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. I mean, don't ever let anyone tell you that Christianity is not about a radical, a radical revolution that explodes in your heart. Born again Christianity is not a variety of the Christian faith. It is the reality of the faith. What, what, what is it that, that takes a, a, a person that's plagued by sexual addiction and changes them? And what takes a perpetual liar and turns them into speakers of truth and grace? And what takes a chronic gossip and makes them an encourager? And what takes a murderer of, of, of men and women and children and turns them into the apostle of, to the Gentiles? It's a heart that's changed by God. In verse 11, he says, Do not cast me from your presence, or take your Holy Spirit from me. Now we know something, uh, and, and it's a blessing to us. We know something greater than David. In verse 9, David says, Hide your face from my sins. And then in verse 11, he says, Don't cast me from your presence, which in the Hebrew is, is literally, Don't cast me away from your face. In essence, what David is saying in verse 9 and 11 is, I want you to hide your face from my sins, but I don't want you to hide your face from me. Now, when you think about it, that's pretty typical in all kinds of relationships, isn't it? I mean, think about growing up. You have a friend that makes you mad. He betrays you. He says something false about you. Doesn't do what a friend is supposed to do. And if you face that friend's sins, what he did to hurt you and to, and to, and to break your heart, you're not going to be able to face him because you're focused on that sin. But if you're going to maintain that relationship, then you have to turn away from the sin and be able to face Him. You can't look at them both. It's, it's one or the other, but you can't look at both. And again, we know something that David didn't know. 
we know what it costs God to turn away from our sin and to face us. Jesus stretched out on the cross looks to heaven. And heaven does not look back. And he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we know the answer to that, don't we? God was hiding His face from His Son in order to hide His face from our sins. Because God can't look at both. And He punished Jesus so that our sins could be blotted out. And when you are born again, that is a truth that goes down into your inner parts and it begins to deal with the sin beneath all the other sins. And it eats away your worry and it eats away your unhappiness. And it begins to work on those addictions and, and those terrible habits. And it eats away the, di- the desire to do something unethical to, in order to get some money. That's what the knowledge of the cross, how it makes the difference. And from that point on, you have no problem asking God to create in you a pure heart. And you pray it every day. Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now, and we're going to have some shepherds down here at the front. Maybe tonight you haven't been living that life that you should have been living and know you should be living. And basically you've been feeling a lot of remorse about that. You've been feeling the embarrassment more than you've been understanding it as a stabbing of God's heart in order for you to do that. And it's time to put that all to rest and to put it behind you and to understand what the call of Christ is. It is to live as a disciple, His disciple, walking in His steps, thinking as He thinks, speaking as He speaks, touching people the way that He touched people, ministering to them the way that He ministered to them, seeing adversity and trouble and strife in this world the way that He saw it, and living your life as light, as true light, as holy light in this community. And maybe it's time to repent, to get yourself back on the right track. If that describes you, some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. Come down and talk to them about whatever it is you need to talk to to them about. But let's do it while we stand and sing together. Oh, do not let the word depart and close thine eyes against the light.